Hello everyone, this is Sam Biagetti of Historian Splaining. It's time now for the next installment, number 16, in Myths of the Month, which will be on the Founding Fathers. So this concept and category of the Founding Fathers obviously is woven into our political speech in America and carries a lot of weight, heavy connotations of wisdom and sagacity. The notion is often invoked that the Founding Fathers wanted our government to work this way or that way, that they were kind of oracles of or visionaries of how the United States should work. There was a very obvious instance of this, which a lot of people talked about from just a few days ago, in the new debate that's arisen over the District of Columbia becoming a state. And a senator from South Dakota tweeted, quote, The Founding Fathers never intended for Washington, D.C. to be a state. D.C. statehood is really about packing the Senate with Democrats in order to pass a left-wing agenda. End quote. And in a lot of ways, this, I think, is very typical of how people talk about the Founding Fathers. They're simply invoked as a group who obviously all wanted one thing, who had some clear will or intention that ought to be followed today and going against the ideas or preferences of the so-called Founding Fathers is dangerous. There are a lot of possible responses one can make to this argument. Uh, You know, it, it is true that the Congress in 1790, if you want to refer to that as, quote, the Founding Fathers, the first federal Congress did want to set aside D.C. and not have it be a state. That doesn't mean that they ever said it never can be a state, and they never imagined that D.C. would have half a million people in it. So in all kinds of ways, the country is very different from what the so-called Founding Fathers anticipated. And furthermore, as others have pointed out, and as I've mentioned also in my previous lecture on the creation of the U.S. Constitution, the Founding Fathers also certainly never imagined South Dakota being a state. At that time, that whole region of North America was not U.S. territory. It was a sort of disputed middle ground zone between indigenous Americans and the French. And it only became a U.S. possession through the Louisiana Purchase, which some of the so-called founding fathers supported and some opposed. And What is more, the Dakota Territory was very thinly populated right up through the 19th century, and it was only split in two and became two states, North Dakota and South Dakota, despite that very sparse population, as part of a strategy to stack the U.S. Senate with Republicans. So there's a great irony then in a Republican senator more than a century later saying, D.C. shouldn't become a state because it's just a way to stack the Senate with Democrats. Again, that may or may not be true. That's a matter of political opinion. But there's a kind of historical irony here, both to the whole idea of making territories or commonwealths or districts into states and why that's done and who gets that power, And also in this notion that the founding fathers have some sort of coherent plan for how the country should work and that we should stick to it. 
And this way of talking about and invoking the founding fathers even extends beyond political and constitutional questions. Sometimes they're spoken about as kind of fonts of wisdom for all of life, for how society should work, for how people and civil society should behave. And you, if you just do a news search of the phrase founding fathers, you see article headlines saying things like, quote, how the founding fathers tackled the plague, referring to the response to the yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia in 1793. So by looking supposedly at that one episode in that one city, 17 years after the Declaration of Independence, supposedly that gives you a window into what the founding fathers thought about disease or epidemics. Another example is, quote, what would the founding fathers say to anti-maskers, you know, which I really love because it's this great instance of taking people who lived more than 200 years ago and trying to smash them into the present, into a very specific issue and episode in the context of today, as if we can kind of divine, you know, maybe we should be holding a seance to divine what would James Madison think about mask mandates. And again, this is an example of looking to the founding fathers, so-called, as sages or models, uh, kind of universal role models, at least for Americans. This way of talking about the founding fathers didn't exist right away. It's something that's had to develop in stages over decades to this point where they're inflated into this kind of mythic scale. And it shouldn't be surprising when you load all of this great meaning and importance onto the so-called founding fathers that there's also a kind of equal and opposite reaction and that in recent years there are new controversies around the so-called founding fathers as being racist, as defenders of slavery and white supremacy. And in particular, there's been a flare-up of this sort of debate in the wake of the 1619 Project, which I discussed last year, and in the controversies over statues and renaming of places, monuments, institutions that have been named after people who either held slaves or were overtly racist. So there are really, you could say, two sides to the same coin here. Whether you love them or hate them, whether you see them as symbols of all that is good or all that is bad, you kind of have to obsess over these larger-than-life founding fathers. So it's a very emotionally charged subject, and when people speak about the Founding Fathers, they tend, whether they're positive or negative, they tend to make very broad statements, sort of sweeping statements about this whole group, usually based on just a few small examples, you know, like what did certain officials do about the yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia, and how can we from that extrapolate to what the Founding Fathers thought. There's little or no recognition of differences or variations among individuals. There's little or no acknowledgement also of everyone else who was involved in the creation of the United States, whether in the Revolution or the adoption of the Constitution. There's very little mention of 
really the the broad swaths of people, soldiers, sailors, farmers, spies, who don't have statues of them, you know, who haven't entered into this kind of mythic status. They just sort of drop out of the picture in favor of these founding fathers. It's important to note that this sort of emotionalism, I think, is really unavoidable. The emotion is built into the very concept and the fact that we talk about these people as fathers. And I of- it often strikes me how weird and even perverse it is to talk about these long-dead people, most of whom we know nothing about and certainly have never met, and to talk about them as in some way our fathers, especially today when most people in this country are not descended from any of those individuals. And when, as I said, we know very little about them, it's it's really very Freudian. They kind of take on this almost Oedipal father role. And in that way, it's it's only natural that there's a strong impulse then to kill the father, or there's a very powerful ambivalence and conflict, inner conflict within the country in how we talk about the so-called founding fathers. It's also lastly important to consider the great ambiguity. Who are you talking about when you say founding fathers? Who gets that special status or label? And the ambiguity, I think, is a necessary element in how we invoke and use the Founding Fathers propagandistically as a sort of national myth. You can sort of say whatever you want about them if there's no clear boundaries of who they are and who you're talking about when you use this phrase. So the notion of Founding Fathers, and I'll get into this history more later, the notion of the Founding Fathers is a concept that evolved and developed out of other earlier, simpler concepts, the concepts of the framers and the founders, which were commonly used phrases in the 19th century before they started to be displaced by founding fathers in the 20th century. So if we look down to the basic root, there's still this sort of implied assumption that the founding fathers, the core group of the founding fathers, are the men who signed certain critical founding documents of the country. And it's really those documents that in an explicit and formal way created the United States as a political entity, particularly the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So initially, the roots of the idea of founders started from just the 39 persons who signed the Constitution after it had been drafted at the convention in Philadelphia. But there are problems with this understanding that the Founding Fathers are simply the crafters or signers of the Constitution. This leaves out certain very important and famous leading figures in the Revolution and the early Republic, such as Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and John Hancock, among others. So many then expand the notion and either explicitly or implicitly include the signers of the Declaration of Independence, which of course was 11 years earlier. And that then expands the group and it includes then these men I just mentioned, like Jefferson, Adams, and Hancock. 
many people then also throw in other very important core documents, in particular the Continental Association of 1774, which was the first explicit statement of unity and cooperation among the colonies and which created the Continental Congress, and also some throw in the Articles of Confederation, which in fact were the first American constitution. They were the first explicit organ of government among the states, which then only later was, for various political and economic reasons, was supplanted by the federal constitution. So if we consider that there are these series of really four crucial documents that brought the United States formally into existence, the Continental Association, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution, then who do we count as a so-called founding father? Does it have to be someone who signed multiple documents and was present and involved throughout this 13-year process, as some people were? Or do you only have to be someone who signed one of these documents? Is that sufficient to be counted as a founder or a founding father? Well, if you say it has to be multiple documents, there's only one person who signed all four, and that is Roger Sherman of Connecticut. So if you're going to be very strict, the one person who definitely counts as a founding father, no matter how you slice it, is Roger Sherman. Obviously, it's plural. It's supposed to be a group. So if we loosen the criteria a little bit and say you only have to have signed three of the four, then there are six individuals, not all the most famous. There are six who then fit alongside Roger Sherman. So then we've got seven. But still... Uh, that excludes a lot of very prominent and famous and influential individuals. So if we say, all right, well, you only have to have signed one in order to count as a founding father, then we have 145 total people, many of whom are pretty obscure and whom I guarantee you've never heard of. For each of the documents, if we look at each of the four, for each one, about 50% or so of the signers signed only that one document and no others. So there are a lot of singulars in the list. And if we just look at the Constitution, so say we focus in again at the Constitution, which is really the, the main core instrument of government that is still in force in the U.S. today and where our idea of framers or founders really came from, most of the signers of the Constitution only signed the Constitution and none of those previous three that I talked about, 27 of them, only signed the Constitution alone, which is not surprising when you consider that really the Constitutional Convention was a kind of runaway renegade project taken up by a special narrower group of politicians and statesmen, and that in many ways was very different from the revolutionary leadership. It was, it was separate from the revolution. So 27 only signed the Constitution. And if we look at those 27, it includes a number of very big names that you have heard of, like James Madison, who sometimes is called the father of the Constitution, and Alexander Hamilton, who at this point should be too famous to need any further introduction. But it also involves a whole lot of very obscure 
people like Jared Ingersoll and Gunning Bedford Jr. and my personal favorite Daniel of St. Thomas Jennifer. And this is to such a degree that even when people try to make depictions of the Constitutional Convention or, say, create statuary halls with statues or busts of all the framers of the Constitution, they have to make some things up because some of those men are so obscure that no one has ever found any likeness or description of them. For this reason... However you cut it, whether you just focus on the Constitution or you try to be more uh, inclusive and look at who was involved in those other earlier documents in the Revolution, either way, you're going to get a very weird lopsided list where you're going to have very obscure names, people who really were not particularly noteworthy in any other way, did not have much impact that we can talk about historically. And you're also going to, on the other hand, exclude some major figures who simply didn't happen to be there to sign this or that document. So it's not surprising that as the sort of cult and myth of the Founding Fathers has grown, it's prompted many efforts to try to create a more balanced canonical list and to sort of look holistically at people's whole careers and the various impacts that they had in the creation of the United States based on more than just their signatures on certain documents. So one can look at their important services like diplomacy, which often took the main important most respected leaders in the young country away and abroad to, say, Britain or France to do the work of diplomacy and hence absented them from these crucial moments when documents were being signed. So when historians use this sort of broader, more holistic definition of a founding father, it yields various different lists. And one more influential list that's been formulated, just for instance, was put together by the historian Richard B. Morris in 1973, where he selected out seven crucial prominent individuals, namely John Adams, Ben Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and of course, George Washington. So there are certain elements on this list that basically anybody would have to agree to. If someone is trying to approximate what people think of and have imagined when they talk about founding fathers, anybody would have to include George Washington and Ben Franklin, I think you'd have to say. The others, probably one of them in this list, John Jay, has kind of fallen out of favor. You know, he certainly did very important things in writing the Federalist Papers and serving as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and acting as a diplomat and hammering out crucial treaties like the Treaty of Paris. Certainly historians would say he was pivotal, but, you know, he was a bit of a cold fish. He didn't have as big and colorful a personality as, say, Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson. So he's kind of fallen out of the picture. But really, if we look at this list of seven, just as one decent example to consider of Adams, Franklin, Hamilton, J. Jefferson, Madison, and Washington, something we have to note is that they have, the seven of them have almost nothing in common other than the obvious. They were all men, 
they were all white and they were all involved in some significant way in the creation of the American Republic. But beyond that, there's really nothing to hold this group together. They came from different social strata. None of them were very poor, although Hamilton came from a pretty modest background, as many of us know. They came from different social strata, different regions of the continent. They've practiced different religions or no religion, and they had very different political ideologies. So the only commonalities they have really are in their prominence and influence and in the basic demographic facts of being white men. And hence, it's not surprising that this way of formulating the group that we're referring to as founding fathers would lead to a backlash. They could easily be seen as simply representatives of nothing but the upper strata, the sort of privileged ruling class of society, since they're all white men. But even this is also not entirely true. Uh, they, all of them had some wealth and a certain degree of, of privilege in the old-fashioned sense of the word by the time they got involved in the revolution. But they also did not represent the upper crust, the true highest ruling class, or I shouldn't say ruling class, but wealthiest, most privileged class in America. Rather, the true upper class of the American colonies at the time of the revolution mostly became loyalists. The, the richest planters, the richest merchants, the most powerful officials, the royal governors, they overwhelmingly became loyalists and got most of them driven out of the country and their property expropriated. So in a way, if you're going to talk about the the social standing, the social class status of this group of people we're calling founding fathers, it's not quite right to just say they were the upper class. Rather, they represented a kind of aspiring, striving, lower upper class, the kind of second tier of society that naturally was drawn to the idea of expropriating and expelling those loyalists, many of whom were one step above them on the social scale. And if we look at, say, for instance, the makeup of the Continental Congress, which sort of managed the revolution, the wealthiest person there was John Hancock, who was a very, very prosperous Boston merchant, who was certainly among the upper class of New England, but still was not at the very top of wealth and power in society. And in that way, naturally fitting as the president of the Continental Congress. As a very wealthy, powerful man, he had a huge leg up, but still that does not mean that he was at the top of American society. So if we take these sort of rough uh, groupings that people refer to as founders or founding fathers, we're talking about generally wealthier, generally fairly privileged white men. But it is not quite right to say that they are simply the elite or the upper class. Okay, so if there are all these problems and ambiguities in the very idea of the Founding Fathers, and it's so unclear who we're even talking about, then how did this idea, how did this myth 
emerge and become so embedded in our kind of national talk, and I would say our national unconscious. Well, it took a long time, and as I mentioned before, it evolved and emerged slowly out of the earlier notions of the framers and the founders. And it has sort of inflated to this monumental level as we have gotten more and more distant from the actual events of the revolution and the founding. And I think that's not a coincidence. The more distant we become from those past events and the less direct connection and the less direct awareness we have of how tumultuous and divisive those years were in the late 1700s, the more the Founding Fathers can kind of take on this mythic aura. The overall trend, if we look from, say, the early 1800s to today, the overall trend has been less and less reference to actual individual founders and their particular actions or ideas, and more and more talk about the group as a whole without individuation or differentiation. And this is true both in popular talk and debate and political talk, as well as in scholarship. Things have moved away from individual biography, putting people like John Jay or Samuel Adams into their regional contexts, and towards broader national history. And the tension that's arisen in recent years, in the past hundred years or so, is tension between two different ways of making generalizations about the Founding Fathers, between focusing on their class and economic standing or on their ideology, their, their ideas and philosophies. But either way you go about it, really, the pattern has been to talk more and more about the Founding Fathers as a collective group that can be characterized in some singular way. So if we go back to the years shortly after the founding, say starting from the 1790s, the age of struggle between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, on up into the early 1800s, what we call the early Republic, in that period it seems no one spoke about the founding fathers, that's for, for certain, or even much of the founders. Rather, at that time, everyone could see around them the constant division and confusion and contention. And even as that age of, of great struggle and uncertainty over what sort of republic the United States would be, whether it would even be a republic at all, that remained within living memory. So people sort of could only mythologize it in certain ways. And everybody just knew as a matter of obvious fact that all the decisions that led to the creation and shaping of the new country was controversial and every change was unpredictable. Nobody thought that there was some single coherent idea that the United States ought to be X or Y or that American society ought to be X or Y. Rather, the only sort of agreements were a, a kind of broad sense of admiration and appreciation 
for those who had taken part in the revolution and secured independence from Britain, whether that was politicians and statesmen or military officers or soldiers and so on. And there was, you could say, a very broad respect for George Washington, who clearly had been pivotal in making the United States seem like a viable cause (laughs) and who had carefully held himself above the political controversies of the early republic and had managed to maintain a broad, though not universal, a broad respect and prestige. Everyone knew that other very important influential statesmen like Jefferson and Hamilton were highly controversial and divisive and that it would be ridiculous to try to talk in some broad brush way about the founders or the framers as if they agreed really on anything. You can hardly find anything that Jefferson and Hamilton agreed upon beyond supporting the idea of American independence. And even though George Washington had this great public persona that was a focus of of love and admiration across much of society, nonetheless, even his presidential administration was beset by controversy and tumult, both within and outside the cabinet. And his second term was politically extremely rocky, which is probably a major contributing factor in why he didn't run for a third term. So really nobody could escape the uncertainty and conflict in the early republic. And as the 19th century went on, and as new generations came of age, and the revolution and the founding faded farther into memory, there was a broad feeling really just of inadequacy and anxiety that they would not measure up to the example of the revolutionary generation. So in that way, you can see the roots of the myth of the founding fathers coming out of this feeling of of unease that they would always be overshadowed by their predecessors. But even then, there was bitter disagreement over the proper legacy and proper meaning to take from the revolution. So there there was at this point there was still no consensus and arguably there has never been any consensus about exactly what the founding fathers stood for even as increasingly we take up this notion and accept this assumption that they did all stand for something. We just don't know exactly or can't agree on what it was. So it was in the early 19th century, starting in the 1810s and 20s, that the concept of the framers started to emerge and gain wide currency. So this phrase, the framers, and you can actually look in the Google Ngram charts and see how different phrases have appeared with greater and lesser frequency through the years in print in the United States. And this phrase, the framers, started to pick up in the early 1800s when there were repeated bitter constitutional disputes over how to apply the different clauses of the Constitution. And one way to try to settle those disputes is to argue what the creators, the authors of the Constitution, intended when they formulated these articles and clauses. 
So what started out really as a kind of rarefied judicial question for courts to adjudicate started to then leak out into popular political talk. And the frequency of this phrase, the framers, reached a peak in the 1830s, probably because of the firestorm around the tariff, the proposals for a high scheduled tariff on imports, which led to a constitutional crisis, a nullification crisis, where this question of whether states could nullify acts of Congress had to be disputed first in the political halls and then very nearly led to warfare. It seems that the, this phrase, the framers, generally just meant those who created the Constitution. And it was a useful and arguably necessary concept in trying to figure out how a government should actually operate when it's putatively based on this Constitution, which is fairly short and in many points is very ambiguous. So people started asking questions like, what did the framers intend or what did they mean by a phrase like commander-in-chief or well-regulated militia? And it can sound very value-neutral, right? It's, it's undeniable that there were certain individuals who did create a constitution, so it should seem natural to consider and discuss who they were and what they were trying to accomplish. And it also can create the sense, furthermore, of a sort of value-neutral government. The idea that certain framers, like craftsmen creating a boat or a clock, simply designed this brilliant machine that now can run on its own and can be used like a tool however people want to use it. It can sound as if these founders were simply trying to create a framework or a set of limits within which entities could then operate as they choose, maybe states or the public or the different organs of the federal government. And in this way, the, the concept can fit very nicely into classical liberalism, which also was on the rise in the early 1800s. The idea of a sort of distant, disengaged, neutral, impartial state that simply creates proper boundaries or a sort of open arena for free individuals to choose their own paths in life. And this way of understanding the relationship between the framers, the Constitution, and American society has some support in the Federalist Papers, like particularly Federalist Paper Number 10, which sort of proposes uh, to allow free reign for individual enterprise and commerce, and for the government to remain a sort of distant and uninvolved arbiter that just sets the necessary boundaries. So in many ways, this idea of the framers was very appealing in the early 19th century, and it could be used in these disputes like the nullification crisis. But there are a lot of problems that come up with this concept. For one thing, there was no consensus among those who created the Constitution. And we know this for certain. There are private notes and messages. There are minutes of the Constitutional Convention meetings. And there are the words and actions 
of the so-called framers after the Constitution went into effect. And there is no agreement there about what the Constitution meant or how it should be put into effect. And there certainly was no agreement among the framers about any one particular element within the Constitution. Many of the signers were openly quite lukewarm about the whole thing and believed it had many flaws and problems that they didn't even want to be present there. And there's a very significant statement of this view by none other than Benjamin Franklin, who was quite explicitly ambivalent about the whole thing and did not see it as an ideal or perfect instrument of government at all. And when the convention was concluding, he said that he was, in a very reluctant, half-hearted way, signing on his approval of this document and asking all those delegates who felt similarly to simply fall in line and promote the ratification of the document, even though they had all of these criticisms and objections. And he said, quote, I confess that there are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve, but I am not sure I shall never approve them. I doubt, too, whether any other convention we can obtain may be able to make a better Constitution. Thus I consent, sir, to this Constitution because I expect no better. The opinions I have had of its errors I sacrifice to the public good. So it's clear that the there was no there was no agreement here. <laughs> what there was was a very complex multi-layered set of compromises which many of the delegates still did not like even as they put their names to the constitution and which not surprisingly they understood very differently and hoped would be applied differently once the constitution went into effect. So the second problem is the constant confusion, disagreement, and sometimes lack of record of why the delegates came up with the weird compromises that they do. And a big example of this, which again I talked about before in my Myth of the Month about the Constitution, was the Electoral College. Why exactly did they include the Electoral College as the instrument for electing the president? There seem to be various reasons that we can extrapolate that are hinted at in the debates of the convention, that they, they didn't want a president directly elected by the public. But why did they do it through this very weird, multi-tiered electoral college system? And why did they apportion electoral votes the way that they did? We truly don't know. There's no record and none of the delegates later explained there was a taboo against leaking that sort of information. It was supposed to be a private brainstorm. So they never explained why did they create an electoral college with each state having electoral votes based on its number of representatives plus senators. We just do not know. And there were other things that came up as controversies right away as soon as the Constitution went into operation, like the Necessary and Proper Clause. Is it necessary and proper to, say, for instance, create a national bank? Uh, these ambiguities immediately led to controversy and to factionalizing, to the creation of opposing factions, where different so-called framers of the Constitution took different positions. 
Furthermore, if we look just at the Constitution itself, it has huge gaps and lacunae. It was a pretty short instrument. It probably couldn't have been ratified if it had been more detailed and explicit on certain ambiguous points, like, for instance, secession. What were the conditions or the process by which a state could choose to leave this union or repudiate the Constitution? It simply says nothing about it. And probably historically we can suppose that the framers simply didn't think that that would be a major point of contention. They simply assumed that whenever there was sufficient dissatisfaction with the Constitution, it would just be scrapped and a new convention would come up with something new, which is precisely what they were doing with the Articles of Confederation. So this idea of a state seceding was simply never addressed in the Constitution. So the great irony here is that the very notion of the framers was formulated and used as a way of trying to respond to the lack of clarity about what the Constitution actually meant, right? So it's it's a concept trying to kind of conjure up something that doesn't exist. There's just no firm answer to these questions of what the framers thought or what the framers intended when they wrote the Constitution. What we have is just the Constitution itself and then certain limited clues or indications that you can draw from other sources, but, you know, like the Federalist Papers, for instance, but the Federalist Papers were just written by three guys. They were not an official organ or or statement of the views of the so-called framers. A third problem with the notion of the framers is that it's very legalistic. It has a very narrow focus on just what is the Constitution supposed to mean? How is it supposed to be applied? It doesn't tell you anything broader about society. And like we said, it has this sort of overtone, this kind of classical liberal overtone of the framework, the sort of neutral guiding framework within which society can evolve and behave as it chooses. So it doesn't give you a sort of broader sense of what should American society be like. Things like what should you do about a pandemic? Should you mandate mask wearing, etc., etc.? It just doesn't answer those questions. And it excludes very influential visionaries who were crucial in the revolution, but who were not at the Constitutional Convention and never signed it. Particularly, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are left out of that picture. And those sorts of figures, those individuals who put forward sort of broader ideas or a broader vision about America as a new society, they become very interesting and are pulled into political debate after about 1850 as the division over slavery becomes deeper. And John Adams and Thomas Jefferson end up being kind of recruited and drafted into action by the opposing sides of the slavery question. Jefferson, of course, was a slaveholder himself and often uh, spoke disapprovingly of abolitionism and efforts to contain the spread of slavery. 
and John Adams opposed slavery. He wasn't necessarily exactly an abolitionist. You know, his career was very complicated, but he did speak very forcefully against slavery as immoral and unjust and took a pretty firm position by the end of his life. So Jefferson, if we consider just Jefferson, he shows the major complication still in trying to derive a vision of life or society from the so-called framers or founders. And with Jefferson, we can talk about him as a founder, and that concept slowly grew in popularity and displaced the concept of the framers. But the complication is that if we speak of him as a founder, we have to completely exclude the Constitution, because Jefferson is one of the so-called founding fathers who never wanted the Constitution to be permanent, who saw it as just a problematic, temporary half-measure that shouldn't be kept in place permanently. Jefferson never much liked the Constitution, and he actually wrote, he had a habit of writing sort of philosophical letters to his political allies as kind of open letters expressing his sentiments. And in 1789, while he was still serving as a diplomat abroad, he wrote to James Madison, his sort of main disciple, saying that the Constitution should be replaced every generation. No Constitution should be allowed to last more than 19 years. And he had a whole explanation of why that was so. He wrote, quote, The question whether one generation of men has a right to bind another seems never to have been started either on this or our side of the water. And he's saying on this side of the water, meaning Europe, where he was serving as an ambassador, or on our side, meaning in America. But between society and society, or generation and generation, there is no municipal obligation, no umpire but the law of nature. So he's saying, just as we believe that one country doesn't have the right to rule over another, so one generation should not have any inherent right to rule over the next generation. Quote, we seem not to have perceived that by the law of nature, one generation is to another as one independent nation is to another. On similar ground, it may be proved that no society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. Every constitution, then, and every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. If it be enforced longer, it is an act of force and not of right. So I think there's a lot of irony you can see in looking back at this letter by Jefferson from the vantage point of today. If I talk to students who are reading the Constitution in the Federalist Papers, Something they'll often say is, well, why do we have to care? Why are we obligated to live under this law that was cooked up by some dead white men more than 200 years ago? And the great irony, I think, is that Jefferson is saying precisely that (laughs) in this open letter in 1789. But this fact that Jefferson wanted constitutions to be thrown out and replaced every generation 
points to, I think, the reasons why this notion of the framers sort of wasn't expansive enough and it was too value neutral. And when real crises came up like the slavery, the sectional crisis over slavery, people wanted something with more content, something more sweeping about the values, the principles that supposedly should shape society. And so this notion of the founders started to displace the framers. And it comes from a wish for a, a more coherent and unified vision of society, both during the sectional crisis and then especially after the Civil War, when people were looking for ways to reunite the North and South, something beyond just the Constitution, which had failed. The Constitution had failed to handle the slavery question and keep the Union intact. So this became very urgent, and as I said, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were recruited by opposing sides as sort of mouthpieces for two different understandings of what the founders wanted America to be. And the phrase suggests a deeper connection to society. They somehow are at our foundation. They're beneath our feet. And what they created was not just a governmental mechanism like the Constitution, but a nation. They gave birth, you could say, uh, to a nation. And in this way, they came to serve a sort of parallel role to mythic lawgivers like Numa or Romulus and Remus for Rome or Lycurgus in Greece or, or Charlemagne in France or Moses for the Israelites. And, and there are a lot of biblical references and classical references that, that try to elevate these supposed founders to that kind of role of, of ancient sages. The concept was useful in making arguments about contending visions of American society, but obviously there was a fundamental weakness that anybody really who had any sort of idea of what America should be could find something that a founder had said or done to support their view. And Jefferson and Adams were simply two contending forces who often fought and competed with one another. And they reconciled on a personal level, but they never reconciled their social and political views. They just had differences in vision and in practice. So this attempt to use the idea of founders as a source of ideals was really, it was failing by the early 20th century. But what allowed it to evolve and develop further was really simply the lack of historical knowledge and <laughs> the new conflicts and problems coming with industrialization, immigration, and mass politics, which sort of reframed the question so that you could kind of overlook and forget about these nuances and differences and divisions among the founding generation and just kind of invoke them as symbols of some vague Americanness or Americanism. And the phrase founding fathers came into usage in the early 1900s. Initially, its predecessor was founding American fathers, but eventually that middle word got dropped out in order to sound better. And both of those phrases, founding American fathers and founding fathers 
were coined by none other than everyone's favorite early 20th century American president, Warren G. Harding. And it makes a lot of sense that this phrase came from Harding for a lot of reasons. Harding had started out as a newspaper publisher in Ohio. He knew how to produce language and rhetoric that would sound appealing and inspiring to a broad audience. He became a state politician in Ohio as a Republican, and he clearly belonged to the conservative wing of the Republican Party. So the Republicans by this time were divided between a conservative, sort of laissez-faire Republicans and progressives kind of left over from the Reconstruction era. And he was a conservative, but also viewed himself as a conciliator, a unifier who wanted to bring these different wings of republicanism together. And he wanted to appeal to a sense of shared, enduring values that could bridge the gaps, both between the different wings of of the Republican Party and between the different sections of the country, between the North and the South, which at his time in the 1910s were still basically partisan divided between a Republican-dominated North and a Democratic-dominated South, with also a Democratic stronghold in New York. So in 1912, he gave an address to the Republican National Convention in which he referred to the founding American fathers. And then at the next convention in 1916, while the country was divided and debating whether or not to get involved in the World War, he gave the first speech that used the phrase founding fathers. And it was in this context. He said, quote, no political party ever has builded or even can build permanently except in conscientious devotion to abiding principles. Time never alters a fundamental truth. Conditions do change, popular interest is self-assertive, but the essentials of constructive government and attending progress are abiding and unchanging. For example, we ought to be as genuinely American today as when the Founding Fathers flung their immortal defiance in the face of old-world oppressions and dedicated a new republic to liberty and justice. So you can see here Harding is weaving together several things, the idea of progress, liberty and justice, the revolution, with this true Americanism. We should be as genuinely American today as we were then. And this was probably very potent at a time when society was rapidly changing, when you had industrial cities, a new massive working class composed largely of immigrants, and also African Americans coming up from the South. You had uh, radical unionism and strikes. So Harding here casts these so-called founding fathers as sort of sages with timeless wisdom that should endure even as society might change, right? Or even despite the popular will, despite the, the, you know, the popular interest is self-assertive, despite the preferences of the masses, the government should hold fast to some fundamentally American principles, 
And in his view, these founding fathers were not just solving problems in their own time, but for all time. They were setting the pace for, for eternity, basically. Time never alters a fundamental truth. So there are several important innovations in this concept of founding fathers that Harding is deploying here, as opposed to framers or founders. For one thing, it has a gender. It now is explicitly male. So if there was ever any doubt, we now know that it cannot include people like, say, Abigail Adams or Mercy Otis Warren, who wrote the first history of the revolution and was the first trying to interpret and uh, draw a political message from the revolution. Founding Fathers also clearly implies a familial and ancestral connection, not just political. So if you believe there is such a thing as Founding Fathers, this implies that you have some kind of personal family kinship relationship to them. That further implies an emotional connection. The idea that these fathers are setting a tone or a model for their children. Hence, they are kind of role models for a whole identity and way of life, not just for politics. And they can be likened to, say, the patriarchs in the Bible, like Abraham and Jacob. And further, if you accept this idea of the founders as fathers, there's also an implication of an ethnic and racial connection, which was very significant in the 1910s because of the tremendous immigration into the country, the massive growth of a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, largely Catholic working class in the cities, which looked quite different from the makeup of the society that had declared independence from Britain. In the 1910s, there was mounting fear over foreign influence, which also then got caught up in the controversies over the First World War. Fear of foreign infiltration of spies, fifth columns. There was a very powerful wave of anti-German animus during the war. And all of this then was only heightened with the Russian Revolution, which happened just a year later in 1917, This, which gave way then in the 1920s to the first Red Scare and the first immigration restrictions, the first laws curtailing immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, which were passed in 1921 and 24. So the first one in 1921 was enacted when Harding was president. And the 20s in general were also a high watermark of white supremacism. When the the Ku Klux Klan controlled several states, uh, it was the height of Jim Crow. So in all kinds of ways, racial and ethnic thinking were, uh, were growing and taking hold at the center of American politics in the 1910s and 20s, just at this time when this phrase, founding fathers, emerges and passes very quickly into common talk, into the American language. One of the great ironies of this fact, every, every element of this myth, as you can see, has, is woven with, with irony. One of the ironies is that Warren Harding was seen by writers and critics at the time as a very poor speaker with a clumsy, long-winded, and pompous style. And there's kind of a famous column from 1920, the year when Harding was elected, 
where the famous critic and satirist H.L. Mencken mocked Harding's language in his speeches. And he said of it, quote, It reminds me of a string of wet sponges. It reminds me of tattered washing on the line. It reminds me of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. It is so bad that a sort of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of the dark abysm of pish and crawls insanely up the topmost pinnacle of posh. It is rumble and bumble. It is flap and doodle. It is balder and dash. And Mencken gives an example sentence, just as one little illustration of what he's talking about, where Harding says, quote, I would like government to do all it can to mitigate, then, in understanding, in mutuality of interest, in concern for the common good, our tasks will be solved. So if you're trying to follow what that sentence is saying, don't worry, you didn't miss it. The phrases do not make sense, and furthermore, they do not fit together into a syntactical sentence. It's a good example of just nonsense. And it can seem very strange. How could it be that someone who was derided in this way for his nonsensical, meandering mode of speech, how is it that he managed to coin this term and others which were so completely embraced into the language and are still very much embedded in our language today? And Mencken himself explains why he thinks Harding's prose is so bad, and I think that it is helpful in understanding why he had such an impact on American political talk. So Mencken goes on, quote, When Dr. Harding prepares a speech, he does not think of it in terms of an educated reader, but in terms of a great horde of stoneheads gathered around a stand. That is to say... The thing is always a stump speech. It is conceived as a stump speech and written as a stump speech. And in speaking of these political rallies, H.L. Mencken says, quote, Such imbeciles do not want ideas, that is, new ideas, ideas that are unfamiliar, ideas that challenge their attention. What they want is simply a gaudy series of platitudes, of sonorous nonsense driven home with gestures. As I say, they can't understand many words of more than two syllables, but that is not saying that they do not esteem such words. On the contrary, they like them and demand them. The role of incomprehensible polysyllables enchants them. They like phrases which thunder with salvos of artillery. Let that thunder sound and they take all the rest on trust. If a sentence begins furiously and then peters out into fatuity, they are still satisfied. If a phrase has a punch in it, they do not ask that it also have a meaning. So Mencken here clearly has contempt for the political masses, and he was an avowed elitist. But he captures something about Harding that I think can account for how he managed to be a brilliant phrase maker. He's able to make something that sounds poetic and meaningful and can sort of paper over the fact that it means nothing or makes no sense. And Harding did bequeath to the language two very common phrases that we still use today. One is founding fathers. The other is return to normalcy, 
which was basically his slogan for his election in 1920 after the tumult of the progressive era, the labor unrest, the involvement in World War I, prohibition. People wanted to go back to normal, which should sound very familiar. And, you know, exactly 100 years later, a new president has been elected on a very similar platform after, again, a period of great rupture and tumult. Now, it happens that he invented not only the phrase return to normalcy, but the word normalcy. Before that time, the word was normality. Normalcy didn't exist. But Harding had this kind of knack for capturing something that sounded meaningful. And, you know, certainly in my opinion, normalcy is a perfectly good word. And thank you, Warren Harding, for handing it to us. But it's significant because these two concepts of return to normalcy and founding fathers are related. They're part of the same general conservative message, the sort of return to basic principles, the putting aside of of excessive change, the putting aside of popular unrest. And they have this what you could call pomposity, but also a poetic quality if you take them on their own terms. And Harding clearly liked the alliteration of founding fathers. And reportedly, that's why he dropped out the middle word American. And the phrase became one of his trademarks. And as I said, it passed on to into the language. Most significantly, Harding used it in his inaugural address when he was sworn in as president where he said at the opening of his speech, he said, quote, standing in this presence, mindful of the solemnity of the occasion, feeling the emotions which no one may know until he senses the great weight of responsibility for himself, I must utter my belief in the divine inspiration of the founding fathers. So again, there's this religious, clear religious overtone, much like the patriarchs of the Old Testament or the church fathers. And he goes on, quote, Surely there must have been God's intent in the making of this new world republic. Ours is an organic law which had but one ambiguity, and we saw that effaced in a baptism of sacrifice and blood, with union maintained, the nation supreme, and its concord inspiring. So here Harding is elaborating on this new myth that he's shaping. And it's an important point to this myth that the founding fathers agreed there was consensus. They must have been divinely inspired, and hence they made an organic law, so possibly referring to the Constitution, although it's, you know, what does he mean? But he seems to mean a, a law that is perfectly fitted to the nation, to the society, that is consistent, which had only one ambiguity. And clearly here he's referring to slavery, and he says that this one difference or division in the Founding Fathers' vision was effaced or erased in a baptism of sacrifice and blood, which is the Civil War. So this is a new myth that the, the Founding Fathers had a single organic vision, and the one problem or divide in that vision was then resolved by the Civil War. So now, after the Civil War and Reconstruction are over, they should return to perfect unity and concord. And hence, because this 
perfect unity now has been achieved, the United States serves as a model for the world and is ready to appear as a, an exemplar on the world stage. And he goes on to say, quote, We have seen the world rivet its hopeful gaze on the great truths on which the founders wrought. We have seen civil, human, and religious liberty verified and glorified. In the beginning, the old world scoffed at our experiment. Today, our foundations of political and social belief stand unshaken, a precious inheritance to ourselves, an inspiring example of freedom and civilization to all mankind. Let us express renewed and strengthened devotion in grateful reverence for the immortal beginning and utter our confidence in the supreme fulfillment. So clearly here, the strong religious overtones, the idea that America is the fulfillment of the sort of divine destiny of humankind. The founding fathers have given us an inheritance. We are their heirs. The, again, this sort of familial political relationship. And it's all bound up with American exceptionalism and triumphalism, especially right now on the heels of the victory in World War I. So speaking of the founding fathers was a way of projecting unity and of suppressing or minimizing differences and internal conflict, whether it was sectional conflict between North and South or conflict between the native uh, Protestant Americans and the largely Catholic immigrants between the middle class and the working class, etc., all of that could sort of be obscured by speaking of the founding fathers and speaking of them in a way that obscured and erased the differences among them. So after this point, after 1921, there is a massive mythologization that spreads really from George Washington. George Washington had always been seen in kind of semi-divine and monumental terms going all the way back, at least to his death in 1799. But in the 1920s and 30s, this spreads over to the other so-called founding fathers. In 1925, Mount Rushmore is constructed, and you start to see the faces of these men in chiseled in stone. In the 1930s and 40s, the New Deal uh, drew on these myths and built further monuments glorifying uh, both the Founding Fathers and Lincoln, who's sort of the one later statesman who gets kind of honorary Founding Father status. For example, the Jefferson Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial in Washington were both built in the 1940s. And more and more, the Founding Fathers were monumentalized and took on a literally larger-than-life image. The use of the phrase Founding Fathers peaked around 1949, right in this sort of golden period, you could say, on the heels of the victory in World War II. So this process that had started during World War I then is just further mushroomed by World War II. It then gradually diminished some, and arguably the Founding Fathers started to go a little bit out of favor, especially as new controversies and divides came up over civil rights and the 60s counterculture. The phrase Founding Fathers diminishes some, but then it starts to rise again after 1990, and by the 2000s, it's come back up almost to an equally high level of frequency in the language as it had in the 1940s. 
not quite as high, but close. And arguably, that might be because, for one thing, the end of the Cold War and this renewed feeling of victory and triumphalism of American ideals as a kind of timeless model and example for the world. So this same pattern of repeating itself. But also the founding fathers get pulled more and more into the culture wars of the 1990s and the 2000s. And a sort of counter narrative forms that basically the founding fathers were bad, actually. And this view also has long roots, but it really came in into the discourse, you could say, in the counterculture and the popular culture of the 1960s and 70s. And there's a nice little reference to this that I think is so interesting in the movie Dazed and Confused. And that movie was made in 1993, but it depicts people graduating from high school in 1976, 17 years earlier. So there's this sort of effect where people who are becoming mature and successful enough to make movies in the 1990s are reflecting back on their youth in the 1970s and how uh, there was this ambiguity and confusion about what you should think and how you should live. And the founding fathers get pulled into that There's a scene where class is being dismissed for the summer, and the history teacher named Ginny Stroud tells the students, quote, Okay, guys, one more thing. This summer, when you're being inundated with all this American bicentennial 4th of July brouhaha, don't forget what you're celebrating. And that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes. So... This is, I think, a striking quote in a lot of ways. For one thing, it's a kind of perfect countermyth. Again, the founding fathers, although they're cast in a negative light, they're slave owners, they're aristocratic, they didn't want to pay their taxes, so selfish, greedy, still they're spoken of as this unified group with some single set of interests and a single agenda. The revolution is seen as basically conservative, with its meaning and its purpose defined by a small male elite. And, of course, this movie, as I mentioned, takes place in 1976, uh, when the bicentennial of independence was being celebrated. And something that many people have pointed out is the irony that the bicentennial really fell flat, that it came right at a moment of diminishing confidence and diminishing sense of unity and purpose in the country in the mid-1970s, coming after Watergate and the oil crises, repeated recessions. And it really fell flat. And in a lot of ways, the mythologization of the revolution and the founding fathers rang hollow in a way that it hadn't before. Today, you could say the founding fathers have, have sort of a second life as objects as tokens of this culture war, much as they had back in the 1830s and in the 1850s during the sectional crises. So really, usage and the meanings of the phrase founding fathers has evolved, I think, with this changing popular mood and popular perception, at the same time that also in parallel, there has been evolving academic interpretation about the same rough group of people, whether the framers or the founders 
or the founding fathers. And in most cases, it tends to run slightly ahead of the popular perception. But really, the two have been very much in conversation, more, I would say, than any other historical topic except perhaps the Civil War, because the public is more aware and more emotionally invested in ideas about the so-called Founding Fathers than they are in anything else in American history except the Civil War. Likewise, if we look at scholarship, from the 19th to the 20th century, there was a shift from mainly individual biography and military history towards social and economic history. That is the new style of scholarship in the past hundred years. And when it comes to American history, a very important groundbreaking movement in that shift was the so-called progressive school, which looked in a more kind of hard-nosed way at the workings of economic power in American society and how that shaped the, the founding of America. As far as the founders or the founding generation, a lot of the academic debate over the past century has revolved around different receptions of a book by the historian Charles Beard published in 1913 called An Economic Interpretation of the United States Constitution. And in this book, Beard looked at the main controversies that the so-called framers were concerned with and grappling with, and the problems that they were trying to resolve with the Constitution, such as the controversy and conflicts over the money supply, which you know is something we just hardly ever mention anymore today, but which was very much front of mind among the people who convened the Constitutional Convention. And Part of this book is that Beard simply looks at each of the delegates who is present at the convention and examines their biographies, their backgrounds, and their economic interests. And he gives a little profile of each one, which I find sort of refreshingly straightforward. And he finds that most of the delegates were fairly wealthy, who came from the upper strata of society as it existed in the wake of the revolution. And they tended to be holders of personality, meaning movable, transferable property. So they weren't necessarily large landholders, but they tended to hold a lot of personality, meaning cash, bonds, especially government stocks and bonds, and slaves. And Basically, in Beard's argument, they pursued their class interests as wealthy holders of personality by creating a government that could guarantee the value of their investments in things like stocks and bonds. So this book was pretty revolutionary in 1913, sort of, uh, you could say, you know, uh, iconoclastic, sort of lifting uh, the veil and looking at the actual nitty-gritty of what these framers wanted, rather than just casting them as kind of these pure paragons of civic virtue. Many historians have seen the book as too cynical and too simplistic, and there has been a gradual move towards understanding the ideology and the philosophy 
that guided the framers and the, you could say, the sort of ideological possibilities and limits of their time, especially the civic republican mindset, which was quite different from the sort of democratic egalitarianism that we're used to today. So historians like Bernard Balin and Gordon Wood have analyzed the philosophy and tried to put these framers into the context of Renaissance humanism and the civic republicanism that was handed down to them. And they really have expanded the understanding of how these men operated beyond just Lockean liberalism, right? Beyond just the sort of social contract, life, liberty, and property that you see reflected, say, in the Declaration of Independence. And they have argued that there was a kind of broader and richer sense of of the sort of society they wanted America to be beyond just this classical liberalism. Now, in response to the sort of Balin and Gordon Wood ideological uh, civic Republican interpretation of the founders, there has also been in recent years a rise of a so-called neo-progressivism. Historians, particularly historians of Virginia, who have, in a way, gone back to sort of economic and class analysis to account for how the revolution happened and how the country turned out the way it did. And particularly, Reese Isaac and Woody Holton have looked at how the the so-called founders, if you want to talk about George Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Richard Henry Lee, these sort of prominent Virginia gentlemen, how they really were desperately trying to keep control of events that were constantly spiraling out of their control and that the decisions they made were not necessarily based on a clear philosophy. They were not simply propounding wisdom like like Jefferson, the wise man of Monticello, just kind of handing down wise decisions from a mountaintop. But rather, they were ambivalent and threatened and were often pushed into action by the lower strata of society. And Woody Holton in particular really emphasizes that a lot of the agency and motivation for events was coming from outside these elites. And his argument is summed up particularly in the 2011 book Forced Founders, And Holton presents independence as a sort of improvised settlement that the gentry felt they had to pursue for fear of society simply falling apart, whether because of slave resistance or conflict with indigenous Americans or British interference or the restiveness and increasing demands of the smallholders, the sort of small, small farmer, lower strata of society. And in the epilogue of Forced Founders, Woody Holton writes, quote, From 1765, when the House of Burgesses took the most radical stance against the Stamp Act of any colonial legislature, to 1776, when Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, Virginia was at the forefront of the American Revolution. Scholars studying the causes of the revolution in Britain's most populous American colony have mostly focused on gentlemen, the likes of Jefferson, Washington, and Patrick Henry, 
Although no one can deny their importance, the thesis of this book has been that the independence movement was also powerfully influenced by British merchants and by three groups that today would be called grassroots, Indians, farmers, and slaves. Today, politicians as well as historians often portray the American Revolution as a tax revolt. This it certainly was, but it was also a conflict among social classes. End quote. So this does not mean that Indians or slaves wanted independence, but it means that they were caught up in a complicated set of conflicts, and independence was just one of the results that came from that. When it comes to small farmers, Holton does argue that they were more revolutionary in Virginia than the upper classes were. And of course, as I said before, the most extreme upper class went in the opposite direction and was more loyalist. So the gentry or gentlemen, these sort of well-to-do landholding men like Washington and Jefferson, were in effect just one class that was caught up in this complicated multi-class drama. And we shouldn't think that they sort of had this grand vision or orchestrated events according to their beliefs, as Gordon Wood might argue, or according to their simple economic interests, as Charles Beard might have said. So it's more nuanced in this way. But a big question that naturally comes out of Woody Holton's work, of course, is how much can this interpretation of events in Virginia be applied elsewhere? Is this really the national story of how independence came about? Well, certainly it, it can be plausibly applied in some places, and also it can be applied to some later events post-1776. For example, I would say it can be the same explanation can be applied to Madison's proposal of the Bill of Rights. That was not, He did not put forward the Bill of Rights because he believed they were necessary. He didn't. They weren't in the original Constitution. He did it because he was trying to mollify mostly the lower classes, the anti-federalists, who were skeptical and resistant to the Constitution. And it was a complicated, unpredictable, negotiated settlement that ended up producing those first 10 amendments. And it just barely worked. Some states, particularly Rhode Island, still held out and rejected the Constitution, even with the Bill of Rights, and had to be forced into ratifying. As for Holton, Holton himself is careful to limit his thesis and to, to caution that it is only applicable to Virginia and may not have parallels elsewhere in other states. But as always happens when historians caution that their thesis has a limited scope and can't be applied elsewhere, that hasn't stopped other people from doing it anyway. And the tendency, especially in the last 10 years or so, is to take this sort of Virginia interpretation of events and apply it elsewhere, apply it broadly. And in particular, the pattern now is to see slavery, the struggle over slavery, as the underlying defining issue that drove a wedge between the colonies, and Britain, and to see the revolution as an effort by colonial slaveholders to defend their slaveholding interests against being undermined by the British. That's a notion that makes the most sense in Virginia, where once fighting broke out, 
Lord Dunmore, the royal governor of Virginia, did make a proclamation offering freedom to any slaves that would enlist and serve the crown against the colonial rebels. So obviously, slavery and the the destiny of of slaves and slaveholders immediately got caught up in the revolutionary struggle. But this idea that fits most neatly in the Virginia case is in a way you could say becoming paradigmatic of how people describe the revolution in general. And uh, probably the greatest example of this is the influential book from 2014 by Gerald Horn called The Counter-Revolution of 1776. And in this book, Horn argues that the revolution was in part a conservative counter-revolution, in his words. And it was an effort, at least in large part, it was an effort to defend slavery from the rising abolitionism taking hold in London, in his words. And I have not read this entire book yet. I'm not going to make a complete uh, critique or discussion of this book. But if you just look at the initial statement in NYU Press's description of the book, you can see how the founding fathers are caught up in this new discussion and this new sort of effort to revise the mythology of the founding. And so the description says, quote, For European colonists in America, the major threat to their security was a foreign invasion combined with an insurrection of the enslaved. It was a real and threatening possibility that London would impose abolition throughout the colonies, a possibility the founding fathers feared would bring slave rebellions to their shores. To forestall it, they went to war. The so-called Revolutionary War, Horn writes, was in part a counter-revolution, a conservative movement that the Founding Fathers fought in order to preserve their right to enslave others. The counter-revolution of 1776 brings us to a radical new understanding of the traditional heroic creation myth of the United States. End quote. So there's a lot that's very relevant here. For one thing... NYU Press is basically explicitly saying this book is an effort to shift, although not destroy, the traditional creation myth of the country. And it is again invoking this idea of the founding fathers. And that is one of the things that struck me when I read part of the book, which again I have not finished, is that Horn actually uses this phrase, founding fathers, without scare quotes. (laughs) And he speaks of them again as a kind of unified or even uniform group with a straightforward shared agenda, which centered on slavery in particular. There, as far as I can see, there is no acknowledgement of the division or ambiguity uh, among the different so-called founding fathers. I searched in the index for John Adams, and there is no mention or acknowledgement of John Adams's public position against slavery. There are many sweeping generalizations, an assumption of unity of views and agenda. And ironically, the, the, the usage of the phrase founding fathers in the book and in the description that I read is similar in many ways to Harding's, to Warren Harding's usage of the phrase when he created it. The founding fathers are taken as defining the meaning and purpose of the revolution. 
They laid the fundamental groundwork of American life and beliefs. They didn't just pen a constitution as a framework of government, but they laid the foundation of American society. And for Horn, that means white supremacism, and he makes that connection very directly. Whereas for Harding, it was something else. It was liberty, justice, etc. And also, Horn, you could say, takes a one step further than Harding did, where Harding, as I said, posits that the vision and law put forward by the founding fathers was organic and unified, with slavery being the only point of division. Horn goes a step further and says that slavery was also a point of unity. It was even the main point of unity among the founding fathers. There is simply no significance in Horn's narrative to the opposition to slavery and the fact that some states abolished slavery during or immediately after the revolution. That simply isn't part of his thesis. And instead, slavery is used as a point of unity among the founding fathers. So say we put aside this question of slavery and what the so-called framers or founders or founding fathers thought about slavery. Say we bracket that and just ask, how is this phrase and idea founding fathers used today? And what are its flaws? If we were to critique the myth of the founding fathers, a lot of the basic points should already be obvious. But to sum up, the notion of founding fathers covers over ambiguity, conflicting value judgments, disagreement and division as to what the revolution meant, what sort of society it ought to give rise to, and who represents, who has the status to speak for and define the meaning of the revolution. Who is a founding father? As I said, there are a few definite candidates that you must include, like George Washington and Franklin, but then there are all kinds of ambiguous borderline cases. For one thing, what about military leaders and heroes? If we think of the classic list of founding fathers, it includes a bunch of guys who didn't actually fight in the revolution. So how could we include them while leaving out crucial military leaders like Nathaniel Green or Henry Knox, who actually made it possible for the Americans to win the Revolutionary War and create an independent country? What about all the other people who fought in the revolution, aside from just these generals? Furthermore, we have to divide the question it is not the case that the same people who advocated for independence then crafted and ratified the Constitution. There is overlap. There are individuals like, say, George Washington or Franklin who run through both of those movements. But there were many who took a stand in favor of independence and against the Constitution or vice versa. For instance, Patrick Henry. Do we include Patrick Henry? He was a fervent advocate for independence. He was one of the moving forces in getting Virginia to throw its weight behind independence. But he opposed the drafting and ratification of the Constitution. And in his view, the Constitution created too strong and centralized a government and threatened to destroy the liberty that the revolution had secured in the first place. Meanwhile, on the other side of the coin, 
there's John Dickinson, a very influential leader and statesman who helped to form the Continental Congress, who actually drafted the Articles of Confederation, the first constitution of the new country. But he refused to sign the Declaration of Independence. He could not countenance a complete break with the British crown. And so he absented himself, he declined to sign, and he resigned from Congress for a period of time before then returning later and drafting the Articles of Confederation. So if we accept Patrick Henry because he was an electrifying advocate for independence, even though he opposed the Constitution, what do we do with John Dickinson, who opposed independence but then was a crucial figure in the framing of the new country? Do we accept both of them, only one or the other? What about foreigners? What about the people who were pivotal in securing independence for the country, who were not from America, who came here out of opportunism or sympathy with the American cause, and then left again, such as John Paul Jones, the first and most important naval leader in the revolution, who was from Scotland and later went into the employ of Russia after the revolution was over? What about the Marquis de Lafayette? You know, he has sort of entered into the mythology of the revolution and has gotten this kind of honorary uh, founding father status because he was mainly just because he was critical in drawing France into the war in support of the United States and because he was, you know, dashing and handsome and young and came from an aristocratic background and it was very flattering to see someone like that joining the American cause as a volunteer. But if we accept the Marquis de Lafayette, what about Pulaski and Kosciuszko, who came over from Poland? Uh, do they not count? What about the Baron Friedrich von Steuben, who was a Prussian military officer who served as a major general and chief of staff for George Washington and who taught drills, European-style drills, tactics, and discipline to the Continental Army? If we allow in Lafayette, why not Steuben? And why has he not been celebrated in the same way as Lafayette? Maybe because Germany never played the same role as an American ally as France. And even there have been, as I mentioned before, waves of anti-German sentiment in this country during and after World War I. So there are all of these sort of gray area cases of people who raise uncomfortable questions about what do we even mean by a founding father and what did someone have to do in order to get into that rarefied club. And probably the biggest, most critical case who pulls in all of these issues, all of these uncomfortable questions, is Thomas Paine. And Tom Paine, he was from Britain, so he was not colonial born and raised. He, he did not grow up in a log cabin or in an elegant plantation house in Virginia. He came over from Britain to Philadelphia because he was interested in the unrest and the political ferment going on in the colonies. And he quickly became an undeniably galvanizing force in the movement for independence. His book, Common Sense, was probably 
in proportion to the population of the country, it was probably the biggest bestseller there has ever been in American history. It was read, it was expounded in homes, in churches, on doorsteps. It electrified the public. And all of these statesmen like Franklin, whom we refer to as founding fathers, all of them acknowledged the public demand for independence exploded because of common sense. And also his later pamphlets like The American Crisis helped to sustain the cause and keep the country on the course towards demanding independence rather than reconciling with Great Britain. He never played a very major role. He was never in the Continental Congress. He was never, obviously, he was not a general or an ambassador. But rather, he situated himself in Philadelphia and was at the forefront of certain radical ideas and reforms that were tried out in Pennsylvania. He advocated for universal male suffrage, for total religious toleration, the abolition of any religious tests for office, which then were incorporated into the Constitution, and also for social welfare policies, things that we might today refer to as socialism, in quotation marks, such as a universal basic income. And furthermore, he also campaigned for ratification of the Constitution in the 1780s. So all in all, Paine might actually be the most crucial individual in securing an independent republic in America, aside perhaps from George Washington. If you, you know, on the military plane, it was Washington. On the plane of political debate and ideas, no one had greater influence than Thomas Paine. But as I said, he was British born. He never held any very high office in Congress or the federal government. And he was overtly radical. In terms of religion, he was a deist. He condemned traditional organized religion. He called for serious redistribution of wealth. And in all kinds of ways, he was not what the inventors of the concept of founding fathers wanted to have in mind. In in some ways, he was even the opposite of what the whole myth of founding fathers was supposed to promote. And so he is generally left out of that list. So the big point that I think these ambiguous cases reveal, especially Tom Paine most of all, is that there are no consistent or logical boundaries as to who counts as a founding father. And any way that you try to define this group or select it, the criteria are always political. It always involves a value judgment as to what one thinks the correct meaning is to assign to the revolution. Any generalizing statement that anyone makes about the Founding Fathers is always political, and it's always essentially circular. You can always say the Founding Fathers were X, or the Founding Fathers believed Y, if you simply exclude anyone who was not X, or anyone who didn't believe Y. And hence, when one tries to make appraisals like the Founding Fathers were good in this way or the Founding Fathers were bad in this way, it always rests on these built-in assumptions about who is a Founding Father and who therefore correctly embodies the revolution and in a way you also could say embodies the country. So 
there is this constant underlying assumption in the concept, even as one puts forward contending political views about the founding fathers were aristocratic slaveholders or the founding fathers were visionaries. There's always this assumption of coherence, the idea that there are certain shared beliefs or visions that make these generalizations possible. The founding fathers believed in limited government or the founding fathers wanted to defend slavery, etc., etc. For example, The Hill published an article in 2019 titled, The Founding Fathers Believed in a Wealth Tax. And there have been other articles since then titled, The Founding Fathers Believed in Private Gun Ownership. All of these sort of statements are kind of easy acts of projection, where you can simply say, I believe, I support this concept, and I am now going to create a mythic group of founding fathers, a mythic image of the founding fathers, by which they conform to my preferences. And this way of, of myth-making and this way of using the myth of the founding fathers, it is inherently, I would say, elitist and individualist. So it assumes that the proper meaning and legacy of the revolution must be defined by a handful of luminaries who are plucked out of their social context and sort of set out as, as meaning makers and history makers in their own right. The notion that a small group of these select brilliant geniuses were somehow exceptional and, you know, Obviously, Hamilton, the recent musical about Alexander Hamilton, is just one dramatic example of this. And Hamilton, of course, is presented here as an individual who embodies striving and self-fashioning, who is able to rise above his circumstances and his environment to sort of make history by his own brilliance. Well, what does this leave out? Of course, any myth where you're selectively choosing who's important and who matters, you're always excluding something. Well, what, what about the larger masses and classes of people who made the revolution possible in the first place? Now, a lot of you probably have heard a myth that at the time of the revolution, society was divided and that it was divided basically in thirds, that about one-third of the population supported independence, one-third were loyalist, and one-third were neutral. Well, that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> that is based on a misreading of a later quote from John Adams where he probably wasn't talking about the revolution and he was only talking about New England anyway, etc., etc. That is just a, a, a baseless myth that has gained currency in popular talk. In fact, that's not true, and there were no Gallup polls in the 1700s, so we can't calculate anything precisely. But historians looking at military recruitment, at who supplied food and, and other supplies to different military forces, looking at patterns of voting in elections, looking at how people read and discussed common sense and so on, uh, the better rough estimate is that about half of North American society was pro-revolution, about one-sixth was loyalist, so it was a smaller fraction and tended to be more elite, and about one-third was neutral. In order for the revolution to be possible, it really needed a significant base of support 
to supply soldiers and sailors to keep the militias staffed, and also of farmers and minor merchants to supply food and weaponry to the Continental Army and the militias. It also depended on a lot of support from women who had to run homesteads, farmsteads, towns, local government even, in the absence of men who were at war. Also, it depended on the support of foreign allies like France and of foreign volunteers. Where do they go in this myth of the founding and the founding fathers? All of those people who all supported the revolution and independence for all kinds of reasons, whether practical or ideological, they drop out of the picture. It's a way of talking about the revolution that sort of forgets the revolution, (laughs) the actual movement that led to independence. Also, once again, we have to consider that this is a complex question of what do we mean by the founding? Do we mean just independence or do we mean the Constitution? Do we mean both? And what about all the anti-federalists? What about the large portion of the population, including a lot of small farmers, a lot of revolutionary veterans, a lot of militia veterans who supported the revolution and independence but opposed the Constitution? And one could say, well, they don't count because they failed. They lost the debate and the Constitution was ratified despite them. But nonetheless, they are responsible for the Bill of Rights. It was their demand of guarantees for freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and so on that got the Bill of Rights enacted. And there's a great irony that when people talk about things like the First Amendment and freedom of speech, they often invoke the founders or the framers when the framers didn't want those didn't want the first amendment it was an amendment that had to be added in because of the anti-federalists insistence so when we're talking about interpreting the bill of rights we really should be talking about the anti-federalists and what they thought and what they wanted so finally once more as i've said before it's really impossible and makes no sense to look to the founding fathers in quotation marks as a source of guidance or wisdom for how to act or how society should operate because there was no agreement even if we draw the circle narrowly just around this elite group even among them there were bitter divisions divisions over the Articles of Confederation and whether to ratify them. Maryland had to be forced at gunpoint to ratify the Articles because of the disputes over who would control the Western lands. Equally bitter divisions over the Constitution. Thomas Paine in favor, Patrick Henry against it, and so on. On how to apply the Constitution, whether the Constitution should be taken to authorize a standing army or a national bank. Even those who helped to write the Constitution, like Hamilton, immediately fell into factional disagreement and bitter disputes over what it properly authorized. The so-called Founding Fathers had bitter acrimonious disputes over diplomacy, over how the United States should align itself diplomatically, particularly between those who wanted to align more with Britain, more with France, or with nobody. And these then were intensified and the stakes were raised by extreme division over reaction to the French Revolution. So you had, on the one hand, Federalists who were horrified by the French Revolution and particularly the Reign of Terror and wanted to align with Britain as a kind of safety mechanism and who saw Democratic Republicans as Jacobins, as dangerous revolutionaries who wanted to bring the guillotine to America. 
And meanwhile, Democratic Republicans looked upon Federalists like Adams and Hamilton as British bootlickers who wanted to reverse, as counter-revolutionaries who wanted to reverse the revolution, create a monarchical, oppressive government in America, or even return America to being a de facto colony of Britain. So you have two sides here, both of whom were led by so-called founding fathers, who looked on the other as traitors, really threatening the liberty and independence of the country. And it was not entirely unfounded. These suspicions were not just baseless paranoia. It is true that in the 1780s, during the crisis over Shays' Rebellion, some Federalists did actually secretly write to Prince Henry of Prussia, asking him to come over and assume kingship and become king of the United States. And even those who, you know, they, they, they quickly scotched this move. But even still, after Washington threw his support behind the Constitution, there were those who wanted him to be basically a king. Hamilton advocated that the president should be elected for life and should have extensive powers like the British king. John Adams wanted Washington to be addressed as your majesty not as Mr. President. So it was not completely delusional to think that there were Federalists who basically wanted to return to a kind of monarchy. And likewise, there were sympathizers of the French Revolution in America who wanted to see a similar revolution carry over the ocean to this country. Even James Monroe, and one of his sort of moments of, of revolutionary enthusiasm in France, predicted that the Americans were going to rise up against the tyrannical oppressor George Washington and institute a democratic republic like they had in France. So <laughs> there was nothing like consensus here. And we can talk about the divisions and the acrimony between the parties today in America, and that's fine. And, you know, they're, they're real and, and they are to be reckoned with. But they're pretty mild still compared to the 1790s and the bitterness that led into the Revolution of 1800. Likewise, uh, in the same period, there, there were bitter divisions over freedom of speech. You know, Adams and the Federalists in Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which more or less, in effect, prohibited criticizing the president. The sort of thing that we would just obviously take for granted as unconstitutional, it was enacted in the 1790s, and it was bitterly fought over. And as we've mentioned before, over slavery. Slavery was a real dividing line between both the revolutionaries who had to sort of finesse and paper over the disagreement over slavery and in the Constitutional Convention among the framers. <clears throat> the reference to the slave trade in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence had to be deleted out because the South Carolina delegates threatened to walk out of the Congress if it was not removed. It was a real fight. In the Constitutional Convention, we talk sometimes about the Three-Fifths Compromise, which was a sort of complicated instrument added in to try to manage these divides over slavery. But it's interesting that in the Three-Fifths Compromise, they even avoided using the word slave. They refer instead to free persons and other persons. They very carefully do not say slave. And that's because they knew that slavery was an emotional, controversial, divisive issue. And they wanted to paper it over with euphemisms. But obviously, as we probably know, this did not work. And the divide over slavery only grew and intensified 
And by 1820, the founding fathers, so-called founding fathers who were still alive, could see that the union that had been formed under the Constitution was likely to break apart. And Jefferson, in 1820, he spoke about the Missouri Compromise and said that it was a fire bell in the night, an early warning that the Union was going to break apart over the question of slavery. And one could go on and on and on, as I've said, with all of the acrimonious conflicts that really repeatedly divided these so-called founders and that, in many cases are still live disputes today. Even the very basic statement that you'll see all the time in history textbooks and articles, the basic statement, the founding fathers believed in a republican form of government, even that doesn't really hold. As I said, Hamilton wanted a president for life with broad powers. And in 1786, the president of the Continental Congress, Nathaniel Gorham, invited Henry of Prussia to become monarch of America. And this scheme, the so-called Prussian scheme, was probably supported by Hamilton. For many years, it was regarded just as a rumor that, oh, a sort of exaggerated rumor that Democratic Republicans threw at the Federalists that never really happened. But several decades later, Prince Henry's reply that he drafted back to this proposal was found in his papers, and it was verified that he had, in fact, received this invitation from Gorham and his co-conspirators in America. So it's not even true to say that all the founding fathers, if you want to call Hamilton a founding father, or certainly it's not true to say that all the revolutionary founders believed in a republican form of government. There was ambivalence and disagreement even on that point. So the basic concluding point I want to make again is just any general statement where one speaks about the founding fathers is necessarily political. It serves a political agenda. It's rooted in an elitist assumption. You can only say the founding fathers believed X or Y if you choose to narrow down to a small group that fits your characterization. A small group usually of very powerful and prominent men. It provides an illusion of consistency and coherence, and it erases out the different people and the, the less powerful, less prominent classes of society that also shaped the revolution and its outcome. So the historical fact that I want to emphasize in place of this myth is that many different people embraced the revolution or called for independence for many different reasons, and they went into it with different hopes and expectations of what would follow, of what an independent America would look like. 